Welcome to episode 35 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psychrammer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Joseph Geraci the co-director of the Transitioning Service Member and Veteran Suicide Prevention Center. Dr. Geraci retired from the United States Army as an infantry lieutenant colonel after serving for 20 years and deploying as a combat leader with elite special operations, ranger, airborne, and infantry units to Afghanistan four different times since 9-11. While in uniform, he also served as an assistant professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in both the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership and the Department of Military Instruction. He serves with the VA Integrated Service Network 2 Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center, or VISIN 2 MIREC, as a licensed psychologist and is focused on studying and developing interventions that mitigate the significant suicidal risks that our modern warriors face as they attempt to reintegrate back into their civilian communities after military service. You can find out more about Dr. Geraci by checking out his bio on our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So it's great to connect with another veteran that made the shift from the military into the mental health field. We're pretty rare, especially when, like you and I, we're not in the mental health field in our roles in the military. I think it'd be helpful for those listening to hear how you made such a drastic shift from infantry combat leader to mental health professional and psychologist. Sure. And thank you so much for having me on. Quite an honor. It was definitely not an easy transition. I think the thing that really led me to the path where I am right now, and I can't be happier, is being a psychologist right now and working day in and day out with our fellow brothers and sisters that are transitioning. So it was a 2006 deployment as a company commander in Afghanistan. It's a pretty rough deployment for us. Lost a bunch of soldiers, and and then within that same time span, we lost one of my best friends. So our our Bravo Company commander, really close friend of mine, and uh, so I came back and I was teaching at the United States Military Academy, Behavioral Science and Leadership. I was getting a master's degree, Columbia University, and and when I got that news, and after that deployment, it, it just hit me really hard. So I, I I wanted to seek mental health care, but you know stigma was very very pervasive in the military at the time. It still is. Now. Now. I just got promoted to below the zone to major. I'm like, there's no way I can get this in my medical record that I'm seeking mental health care. What I did is I decided to go to a vet center, a White Plains Vet Center, part of the VA, and one of the best kept secrets within the VA. And I'll never forget just how anxiety provoking it was for me sitting in that lobby. And that was the first time I had to admit I had weaknesses, that I had things that I needed to work on. And what made it even more difficult is my comrades weren't there with me to go through it. It was like me facing it by myself. And I hadn't been trained for such a situation. But very thankful to my therapist that worked with me. And I went in and said, hey, you can't know my name. You can't know anything about me. Just 
you just need to know that I need some help. And, and she was phenomenal. And six months later, having established a great relationship with her, I was just wowed. I was like, wow, this is phenomenal, magical. And I don't use the word religious, but really spiritual stuff, like soul connecting stuff, connecting with another human being that really wants to help you. And from that, just a whole new world was opened up to me. But honestly, I was also like, this isn't that hard. This is just good leadership, like a leader sitting down and validating the troubles, the trials of somebody else and helping them through the process. This is just good leadership. And so that kind of started a whole new realm perspective for me. So I stayed an infantry officer until I retired. Uh, so I served 20 years as an infantry officer. My last job was infantry battalion commander. But during that time, teaching at West Point, I was able to go to school on and off. I really wanted to become a licensed mental health counselor and then a psychologist. And so I was able to implement lots of these concepts and then able to really do what I'm doing right now as a psychologist that has 20 years of experience to pull from that allows me to become a much better therapist from those deployments, from those experiences. And I refer a lot to Carl Jung, who talks a lot about the wounded healer. And when I sit down with my veterans and my patients and use the example, Put your fingers, you know, into my wounds like they're still there, but like they're scarred over and we're going to get through this together. So it's uh, that just the term spiritual. It's just really spiritual work to be able to connect with another veteran that's going through so much trouble. And you see it in their family and criminal involvement, and drug use and alcohol use. And at the end of the day, it's just two human beings really connected and guiding them on that journey together. No, I think that's really significant, especially as you're talking about you had just come back from an infantry combat deployment in Afghanistan, and you're worried about what's on the other side of that door, right? You weren't worried about what's on the other side of the door necessarily in Afghanistan. Some of it because A, you were trained there, B, because you had all of the forces of the military might behind you, your buddies to your left and right, close yeah. air support, all kind of stuff. But it was it's always intriguing to me that a, an infantryman or a service member, they'll breach a door in Afghanistan or Iraq, but it takes a lot more for them to cross the threshold of a therapist office. Yeah, exactly. And just kind of, you know, reflecting back to that anxiety, the, the heart just beating, just compared to any aerosol rate I'd ever been on, just like, you know, to just elevate it. Uh, physiological reactants just sitting in that lobby. And I also think that another thing I learned is that we don't need a whole host of therapists. Like we don't need to hire 100,000 therapists. We need to train the leaders and we need to train the community to better relate so we can validate, understand, and help these service members. And I talk a lot about the disease model is failed for this population. And that's what we write a lot about with some of our publications is like this modern warrior model. So like we all need assistance. We all need care. We all face challenges and difficulties in our transition. And we all need an elder, a guide or a Sherpa to help to be a role model for us and guide us through the process. And so what would that look like then if it was expected that it's a universal approach that everybody gets assistance, everybody has an opportunity to improve, opposed to we're going to screen you. And yes, you screen positive. So now we're going to refer you to clinical care. And then after 12, 15 sessions, you no longer will have that symptomology. So I, I think it's clear from a lot of the publications that read the research is that disease model doesn't work. It, it's beneficial for some. And 30% of my time, I provide clinical care for veterans. So it's important. It's critical, but it's, it's just one piece of the pie and a more holistic approach. And I think that idea of providing support to the, the first line leaders, because they know their service members 
best or if we're talking about veterans getting it in the hands of the people that are working directly to them. Peer specialists, but peer specialists that have been trained to understand things. You and I are like super peers. Somebody comes into my office and it looks like a retired first sergeant's office. We've got flags and, and maps on the walls and stuff like that. But you're right. There's not that much of a difference between when I was a first sergeant. Hey, pull up desk side. Hey, Joe, what's going on with you? What's happening? How can I help you? But now I have the clinical training, the, the clinical concepts and theories and the training in those theories to be able to help do that a little bit more than I was when I was a platoon sergeant or first sergeant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so what's good enough? And where's where is the trust is inherent with that leader? As long as they're a good, effective leader, that subordinate is sweat, blood, run, train missions, jumped out of airplanes together with that leader. And therefore, they're just an innate trust opposed to this therapist they've never met before. And it's this very hierarchical, prescribed kind of situation and session. And that service member needs to get a diagnosis and an encounter for that session to happen. So what would it like if we freed up the system so that we're just all connected and helping each other out through the process? And the acknowledgement that we all need help. No, I absolutely agree. I, I think, and you're talking about the disease model, I talk about the medical model of, of military and veteran mental health, where it's PTSD, TBI, substance abuse, where there's a diagnosis, it's very transactional. But I imagine in your work, there's more stuff that goes on, things like purpose and meaning, or, or how do I get my needs met after the military? There's no diagnosis for that. There's no, there's no pill that can help me have a better relationship with my wife, although my wife perhaps would want one. But there's, but so the, there needs to be an integrated model beyond just the medical model or the disease model you're talking about, but really about the whole person. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more on that. And so your role now is, is co-director of the Transitioning Service Member Veteran and Suicide Prevention Center with Vision 2 MIRAC. The center's focus is to specifically implement initiatives to mitigate suicide risk for military members transitioning out. Why do you think that this is a particularly significant time of risk for service members and veterans? Sure. And just to just be up front here, so I'm official on, on, on leave today, not here in my official role and capacity is uh, on the publicly available website there. Speak from a, a veteran's perspective to answer that question and then also confer in reference to some of our publications that uh, we've been talking about. So why is this, we refer to in uh, a couple different papers we publish as the deadly gap, is service members really have challenges as they transition. And I think a lot of it goes back to that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose. So many of us raised our right hand for a higher purpose, to improve ourselves, to, to be something that that is greater than we were prior than our service. And many of us played sports and we were team captains and we just wanted to take it to the next level and serve our country. And so then we serve our country and, the, and there's such a phenomenal support system for that. So you want to enlist within the military, there's thousands and thousands of recruiters from sea to shining sea that are more than willing to work with you and get you enrolled and help you through the process. And then you've got your drill sergeant and then you've got your team leader. And even through that process, when you go from one installation to another and your permanent change of station, you get a sponsor, PCS sponsor. So there is such phenomenal structure and organization to help facilitate that. And leadership matters. Effective leadership matters. And uh, within the military, we've done a phenomenal job of providing leadership to help support this process. But unfortunately, when you get out of the service, there's no leader. 
you try to go to the, to that recruiter and ask them to, Hey, can you help me to reintegrate to my hometown? And they're going to tell you to, sorry, but like, you know, I got nothing for you. I can and put you back really, in. Yeah. I can put you back in. There's no system. There's nobody that's going to help you get a job. There's nobody that's helping you to find housing. There's nobody that's going to help connect you to medical care. There's over 45,000 veteran service organizations that think they can, but there's no system. There's no national strategy to help to integrate them. And I see lots of some, some pockets of excellence, but I also consider them silos of failure. There's no integrated system to kind of help these service members go from service to a successfully integrated civilian that is looking for their next mission. And like when you turn in that that ID card that last day and get your DD-214, it's like turning over part of your soul. It's like this, I had four years at West Point, 20 years in the service. Like when I turn that in, I'm like, who the hell am I now? Like I walk back to my car, I, I am no longer a service member. Like I am a civilian now. And what does that mean? And what am I going to do with my life? That can be really challenging for service members and a lot of the VA publicly available research in regards to suicide rates bears it out. So for especially for the youngest service members, the, the rate for them for the 18 to 34 year olds was like 22 per 100,000. 2006, that's more than doubled over the last 13 years. In spite of all the great work that the VA and the DOD and the communities have done, there's a significant issue and concern. So uh, a lot of the work that that I do in the VA and a lot of the work that, that I write about is, is helping us to understand how do we bridge that gap? As we talk about, as I mentioned, we, we describe it as the deadly gap. Because that's the rate overall for 18 to 34 year olds. And then the rate is even doubled in that first year. They really kind of get lost in, in between two worlds. And we also write up to the paper called Modern Day Odysseus. And Odysseus was in you know the Battle of Troy for 10 years. And the Iliad is dedicated towards that. But the Odyssey, you know, equally in length and equal amount of time dedicated to Odysseus's reintegration to his community and the trials and tribulations that he found and he faced and losing his sailors along the way. And what's significant about that in kind of the comparison is not only I go back again to Carl Jung's collective unconscious that we're, there's this warrior underlining aspect that connects us with this collective unconscious over time. So a lot of the things that Homer wrote about related to Odysseus are still being lived out today. And one thing I'm really drawn to in that in the, the Odyssey is that Odysseus had Athena to guide him through the process. It was that spiritual guide to help them. And then even when Odysseus comes back to his home and there's suitors in his home that he needed to literally battle and he, he was about to give up, it was Athena that came in the, the, the form of mentor. Like I almost fell out of my chair when I saw like what Athena, the, the form that she took as mentor was uh, was Odysseus's uh, former comrade in, in battle. And it was mentor that said, stand by me, stand by my side. I'll get you through this. So going back to that, that modern warrior approach and very much going back to Greek mythology, this is the modern warrior we talk about it. Everybody, everybody needs assistance. Everybody needs guidance from the recruiter to that team leader, to that company commander, all the way to somebody helping you successfully reintegrate into your community. I know Sebastian Younger talks a lot about this in Tribe also. Is that like you need to find your tribe? You need to have your purpose. And I think so many of these, especially the youngest service members, the lowest ranking ones, they really are challenged 
and face difficulties when they do it. I know I faced challenges as a senior army officer when I transitioned. I had all these schooling, all this experience, all this education, and it's still, I felt like I got kicked in the gut. And I'm like, holy cow, this is going to be hard. And I've had a challenging transition. Even I love the VA, but it was it's a different organization. I was a civilian. There's very few veterans that serve as uh, mental health providers within the VA. It was still challenging. I, I love my, my job now, but it doesn't mean it wasn't a challenging transition. And, and, and so the name there for the task, Transition Service Member slash Veteran, the Suicide Prevention Center, very much is a playoff of, as, as an infantryman, it was always about my task and purpose. So the task that, that I do and an official duty is helping to bridge that gap to help our brothers and sisters successfully reintegrate and find their next mission. Our community needs them. There's so many challenges in, in our communities and our civilian society right now. I think you know, veterans really can be a beacon of hope and role models if we can get them through this transition. You know, what I really appreciate about that is that you didn't say that the transition challenges are as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or substance abuse. Again, not talking about that medical model or that disease model, but really we're talking about existentialism, right? Rollo May and Urban Yalam and, and things like that, but, but really about parts of our identity. I've got a buddy who's a Green Beret who medically retired after 18 because he didn't want to limp behind a desk until 20. But he said, the army said I couldn't be me anymore. It, it literally took away my identity. But then there's that, what happens to the warrior who no longer has a war to fight? And again, you mentioned younger and younger talks about in, in previous cultures, it was necessary to reintegrate back into because there wasn't enough people, right? So the warrior had to come back and reintegrate and repurpose themselves. But perhaps we're at a place of affluence in our country where we can afford monetarily, let's say, to be able to, so to speak, put some service members on a shelf. So that 25-year-old is really looking back at combat as the highlight of their life. And now I'm walking backwards for the next 75 years. Yeah, it can be really challenging. You take away that that purpose and that role and that meaning. And I really like that, that the warrior doesn't have a war to fight. So what do they do now? Yeah, and I think both of us are examples of we find meaning in what we do. Like we help others, like we get the message out and we continue to fight. Like we need to fight. Like it's in our DNA. Like we got to fight and we, we need a purpose. And I think you and I are just good, good examples of what that can look like. And and not necessarily fight as in violence and, and things like that, but to be able to put our hand to another significant challenge. If we talk about fighting poverty or I've heard of a number of former special forces individuals getting together to fight child trafficking or things like that. So finding, as you said, really finding that purpose. And you talk about just, yes, the deadly gap, the individual gap between one service member, military mission and post-military mission, but also on the show in, in a lot of different places, there's a lot of talk about the, the gap between those who serve and those who haven't and how challenging it can be to bridge that gap from both the veteran side and the non-veteran side. Your team has done some work around bridging that gap between individuals, not just necessarily bridging the, the gap between one thing that someone does and the other. So I'm interested in hearing more about that. Sure. Yeah, definitely the military civilian divide. And I was surprised, as I mentioned, how few veterans are in the mental health field. I see, like when I look at graduate programs, I, I see that they're really trying to recruit and do some good work, try to bring some veterans in. But if you look at majority of the force of mental health providers, there's definitely a dearth of veterans um, that are amongst them. And as I mentioned, that care, the disease model is necessary. There is absolutely care that needs to be provided, not only in, in that mental health office, but in also there needs to be a veteran cultural
people confidence increase within the HR field, within employments, within education across the board. And so the approach that I write about a lot is that we just can't help that service member transition. As you mentioned that gap, we need to adjust and adapt the water within which that the service member swims and that veteran swims within the community. And it can be toxic, unfortunately, to that veteran that's transitioning. And it can also be phenomenally supportive, beneficial as, as it's been for me and having mentors and guides that help me through the process. So one thing we try to do is try to increase that veteran cultural competence. So some of the work we do with the with Psych Armor to provide some of that foundational understanding and, and knowledge base. But we also write about and publish that there's absolutely limitations to that webinar. There's absolutely limitations to that hour-long PowerPoint presentation that you gave or that you received. That can be part of the classroom, but where's the lab? Like, where's the immersion? So a lot of the work that I started when, we were at, when I was at Columbia University and still working on now is we need to help put the community in a, at least a day-long experience where they're immersed in that culture. They're, they're marching, they're saluting, they're broken up in a squad. And that, that, uh, that civilian that has never served a day in the military is now a squad leader that has Nerf guns and going in and clearing out insurgents in a hallway and getting their entire squad killed or killing you know, civilians in the room or shooting the reporter. And you just got your whole squad killed. What's that like for you? But then also to kind of allow the civilians to kind of see, as I mentioned, like our wounds and, and our emotions and I don't know, it's okay. Like we want to connect with you. And a big thing that uh, I really have to emphasize in years and years of training civilians and sponsors is that you're never going to connect with me on uh, the same situation that I went through, not through context. You're going to connect with me, though, in this universal aspect of emotions. So what's it like for you to feel vulnerable? What's it like for you to feel alone? What's it like for you to feel guilty and to feel shame and grief and go there with me as a human being? And that's that universal connection. And that's where I'm going to grow is when you can join me and really, truly empathize and, and step into my skin and look at the world through my eyes and take on my emotions. That's where the beautiful spiritual connection is and, 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 and how hard that how hard that can be for civilians, for anyone to do, but to let them know that it's feasible and it's possible. And because, you know, with the heterogeneity of the experiences of veterans, no veteran is like any other veteran. We're all different. We're all unique. So don't try to connect with us in like situations. Yeah, it might be beneficial if you know the ranks and the branches and have some experience, but that doesn't matter as much as me knowing that you really want to help and that you really care and that you're willing to co-create, be vulnerable with me. That is so much more powerful. And a lot of our work was with sponsorship, with training people. We've just seen phenomenal results from helping civilians to just to be open, interested, but most importantly, being vulnerable and being a human being with them. So I mentioned the modern day Odysseus paper that we wrote. We, we really mentioned a lot about that, about guidance to non-veteran providers and also HR business leaders and, and how important that this can be. Now, I, I really appreciate that concept of a lot of people try to connect with veterans, or, or maybe they don't. They're afraid of trying to connect with veterans on a contextual level because they say, I don't know, I couldn't understand what it would be like in Baghdad or the mountains of Afghanistan. And so there's a distance which maybe provides that, get thee to the doctor, let me get you to somebody who can do that. Whereas if you're training people to connect on an emotional level, we understand what loss means, whether it's the loss of a parent or someone who loses a buddy. And so by bridging that gap through the emotional level rather than the contextual level, it makes more of a personal connection rather than the, I don't know how to handle this crazy combat vet. Yeah, 
No, exactly. And that's the kind of differentiation, this PowerPoint presentation that you're receiving compared to I am immersing you into in a day long experience where those emotions are going to be present all day long. And I can't say enough about uh, Brian Dory's and his work with Theater of War. So we usually end the day with that. And you can Google our veteran cultural competence training. And it's just phenomenal bringing those actors in after everybody's already been exhausted from connecting emotionally with each other and shooting each other with Nerf guns and the consequences of that. March in and then throw them into theater of war. It's just really transformative. I'm really excited for our future work with the psych armor on, on helping to, to further expand this work. Yeah, no, I am a huge fan of theater war and Brian. I actually interviewed him for another show and early on in that particular show, but still my favorite personal episode, just the work that he and his team are doing. And again, Brian, somebody from that side who didn't serve in the military, he's not a veteran, and yet he has been able to step into that gap and bring a really powerful tool to the to the fight, so to speak. And, and as you're talking, I'm thinking something that we very well know, you have technical proficiency and tactical proficiency, and you need both to be able to accomplish the mission, psych armor, other training courses, they can provide technical proficiency, they can provide the knowledge, but you need the tactical, the practical application of these things to really get it. Joe, I, I really think that uh, the work that you're doing is great. If people wanted to find out more about you or the work that you're doing, how could they do that? Sure. They can just uh, type my last name, uh, G-E-R-A-C-I, and first name Joseph into Google and just type in uh, VA and it, it'll come up right away. So our, our websites are there and a lot of my publications and, and writings can easily come up when you do that. Absolutely. We'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. So thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, sir. Really appreciate everything you're doing. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. I really appreciate Dr. Geraci sharing his personal story about overcoming the stigma against seeking help for psychological distress. There's been a lot of discussion about this over the past 20 years, and there's been a lot of stuff to overcome in those 20 years as well. We often think about stigma as an individual thing that each service member and veteran must overcome on their own, but it's actually something that we can address at the cultural and systematic level. A 2014 study by the RAND Corporation, which I'll link to in the show notes, identified a number of priorities that must be addressed in reducing stigma at the group level. First, we must reduce the impact of stigma, change the way that the group or community sees help-seeking behavior and how the larger groups behaves towards those who are reaching out for help. Second, there must be cultural change. Reaching out for help must start to become more acceptable, both at the recognizable leader level as well as the individual person-to-person level. Third, a group must increase peer support. When reaching out for help is supported and encouraged by trusted peers, then help-seeking is more likely to happen. A fourth priority is to change perceptions about the effectiveness of mental health. This is one that I'm really big on. For many service members and veterans, they generalize bad experiences in therapy, but specialize good experiences. For example, if a veteran has a bad experience with a therapist, then they're more likely to think that all therapy sucks and it doesn't work. But if they have a good experience with a therapist, then therapy may still suck, but working with my therapist is okay. We need to flip that around. And finally, we need to reduce barriers to care that keep people from getting to help when they need it or want it. When a service member, veteran, or family member reaches out and knocks on the door, somebody has to be ready to respond, or else the whole system breaks down again. So overcoming stigma is important on the individual level, as Dr. Dracy and I talked about in our conversation, 
but collectively as a group, it's possible to create a culture of help-seeking behavior that overcomes much of the stigma against reaching out. The other point that I'd like to make is another thing that Dr. Dracy and I touched on in the episode, the importance of finding purpose and meaning in post-military life. This is yet another subject that I'm really passionate about. With the majority of my therapy clients, this is often the number one thing that they're dealing with. Not PTSD or substance abuse or depression anxiety, but how do I find something to do with my life after the military that's as fulfilling as what I did when I was in? Even when I was doing it, a lot of the actual moments sucked, but I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. Purpose and meaning can be a difficult thing to wrap our heads around. As I mentioned in the show, it's a branch of psychology called existentialism. What's my reason for being here? Why am I doing these things? They can seem like frivolous thoughts of a veteran's just trying to put food on the table, but it's a core aspect of who we are as people to want to understand what our place is in the world. As I mentioned, I can talk about this on a whole different podcast, but I wanted to share how I explain to my clients and others when I'm presenting on this topic. The two words we're using, purpose and meaning, are sometimes used interchangeably to mean the same thing. I've found it helpful to break them down separately, though. Meaning can be something that's important to you. My family is meaningful to me. My work is meaningful to me. Life and veterans and freedom are all meaningful to me. I value them. I appreciate them. They satisfy me. Purpose is also something that is important to you. I find purpose in the work that I do, the content that I create, the effort that I make to support my family. I value them also and appreciate them and they satisfy me. Meaning is value that we placed on things from an internal perspective. And purpose is value that we receive from things from an external perspective. Meaning is the internal push, while purpose is the external pull. Purpose is a thing to be done, an external task to be accomplished, while meaning is an internal feeling of satisfaction related to something external. We can have purpose without meaning. How many times have we repeatedly performed routine tasks without much satisfaction? Some veterans find this in their work in post-military life. They get a job and do something. They find a purpose, but it's not satisfying. It's not meaningful. Alternatively, it's possible to find meaning in something that's not actually meeting a purpose. Binge-watching TV shows or playing video games for eight hours may be satisfying, but it's not actually accomplishing anything. For service members and veterans to be fully whole in their post-military life, they need to have both meaning and purpose, which is a long way of explaining exactly what Dr. Geraci was referring to in our conversation. I'll include some articles on meaning and purpose in the links in the show notes, as well as a link to another resource Dr. Geraci mentioned on the show, The Theater of War. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to highlight the Psych Armor course that Dr. Geraci uses in his practical experience workshop on military culture, Veteran 101. This course is intended for anyone with little to no background or understanding of military culture. Topics include information about the training involved for service members, some basic military terminology, and an overview of important policies that guide our military. The goal of this course is to provide a better understanding of differences between military culture and civilian culture. You can find a link to this course in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to the episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash btm35, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. 
Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.